Hi, I'm Nikki Schrera, and welcome to The Jazz Session, the original jazz interview podcast. Lesson one, basic hip. This is episode 572 for the 27th of October, 2021. Remy LeBeuf is a Grammy-nominated composer and saxophonist whose music is rooted in the jazz tradition while drawing on various influences, ranging from contemporary classical sounds to indie rock energy. His jazz orchestra, Assembly of Shadows, is a dazzling vehicle both for Remy's compositions and his voice as a saxophonist. The 20-piece ensemble releases its second album, Architecture of Storms, on the 5th of November. I caught up with Remy ahead of the release to ask him about his influences, process, and just exactly how he juggles manning a large ensemble. Hats off to all big band leaders everywhere. Remy, hi, and welcome to the jazz session. Hi, nice to be here. I thought you were going to say nice to meet you, and I was going to be like, are we pretending we don't, like, vaguely know? (laughs) We can, but I was like, no, no. We go way back. Yeah, we go way back, and yet somehow I think this is going to serve, at least for me, as a really nice opportunity to ask you questions, things I've always wondered. And the one thing that I always thought incorrectly because you've corrected me in the past was I always thought you were Canadian and I have now realized why Mm. and it's because I've been looking at your surname and I you know Remy Leboeuf and we've spoken about you know how it would be pronounced in France or in Quebec and that's why I always thought you were from Quebec. Well that and you know we used to always tour in Canada like when when I when when we first met you know and I had a lot played with a lot of Canadian people it it was a, a reasonable conclusion to make, but no, I'm from California, born and raised, you know. I've got the French name because my dad is from Louisiana. He's Cajun. So maybe a couple hundred years back, my ancestors migrated through, I think, Montreal, from uh, originally from Normandy, on the French side, at least. <laughs> so. Okay, you see, so this is the heritage stuff that I've always wondered about you. So we're already getting, getting to the bones of it. I'm thrilled. Uh, yes. You have a fantastic new album that is coming out on the 5th of November on Soundspore Records. It's called Architecture of Storms, and it features your Assembly of Shadows, which is the name of your large ensemble. I was so excited to hear it because I think 
personally, for me, it marries so many genres of which I'm incredibly fond. There is a kind of symphonic heft to it. There are a lot of sounds of it which are very traditional big band, which I, I still, you know, adore. There's that familiarity there. There's something really contemporary about it, sort of um, slightly rockish at times, slightly singer-songwriter at times. I really just, it spoke to me in that way, and it was a kind of take on the genre that I hadn't really heard of late from a large ensemble, arranger, composer, leader. And there are a lot of, which is great, I don't know how people do it, hats off to you all, a lot of large ensemble albums coming out at the moment. I feel like the, the genre is kind of really bubbling over with sonic gifts for listeners, so that's great. But Tell me, in your words, how would you describe this music and how does it differ from your 2019 album with your large ensemble? Sure. Uh, I think that this music represents just a lot of facets of who I am. Um, I, I grew up uh, with a, a lot of different, you know, with my, my fingers in a lot of different pies. You know, I played oboe in a youth orchestra. I sang as a boy soprano uh, and, you know, I... I play saxophone with Himes sometimes, which is like a, you know, indie rock band, you know. Uh, so, uh, and then of course, you know, I'm, I'm, my roots are in jazz. So I, I just kind of have a lot of things that contribute to who I am and the things that I hear in my mind. So when, when I'm cooking, uh, you know, a meal, I like to use ingredients from all these other different, you know, culinary places, you know, and that's the metaphor, I guess, you know. So you know, uh, it, it, my music ends up kind of being this kind of amalgam of things that I feel are very uh, personal to me. And I, at least I, I think I could be convincing about it because it's all coming from a really real place. Um, I think there are a lot of fusions that can be a little, you know, uh, d don't always, you know, feel natural. But uh, this this is all, I think for me to to be more pure would be unnatural to who I am. So, um, I'd and, and what was the other half of your question? The second part of your I question? I can't remember. The preamble was so long, but, um, oh, how is it different than assembly than the first record? Yes. The, 2019 the first record, one. I think I wanted it to be like a really clear vision because I think when, when you debut a project and it's not like, this is exactly what it is. People are a little confused about it. So, um, that one, I, I was very, it was very story oriented. It was very like modern jazz orchestral. And so on this one, I felt free to, you know, uh, include some more kind of indie rock poppy kind of stuff and, and also get a little more traditional at times. And you're just on the encore tune at the end of the album. Uh, but uh, there's still that orchestral kind of thing going on. But I, I just kind of got to expand into some other territories that, uh, that I, th I think uh, are, are a lot of fun. Yeah. When you say encore tune, do you mean rumpus? I mean rumpus, yes. That's kind of how I envision that tune. Uh, it's just this kind of like fun thing at the end of the end of the album. Well, you know, the funny <laughs> thing about it is I love that tune and listeners will hear it during the course of this interview. But I heard that and I just thought, gosh, this is so classy and sophisticated. And there was something cinematic in and of that, that kind of, I guess, era that somehow it musically captures. Mm. And one of the adjectives that was used to describe your your ensemble by um, the Brooklyn Rail was cinematic majesty. And I feel like mm. this album does really showcase that across the board, whether it's a more contemporary tune like 
the melancholy architecture of storms that has Julia Easterlin singing on it. So it does also lend itself to sing a songwriter or whether it's something like Rumpus, which you say was just supposed to be tongue in cheek fun, but it's done so well that it does stand its ground. Thanks. Yeah, it's funny. Cinematic is one of these adjectives that I can't seem to escape. Not that I'm trying to escape it, but uh, for years, um, a lot of like writers or people have been like, oh, you should write for movies or it sounds like you're, it's, you know, uh, but I, I think it's because a lot of the I, I, I consider a lot of emotions when I when I play and when I write. And I think that uh, a lot of a lot of film scores probably try to match their the story of their music to an emotion, stuff like that. But, um, but yeah, um, I, I, I uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to write cinematic music. <laughs> I think it's a complete compliment because I also think the thing that cinematic music gets so right is that emotional connection that it makes to the listener, right? Mm. Often paired with visuals. But so I think if somebody describes your music that way, then they're saying there's a real emotional connection, even if it's personal to the listener. Mm. Like even if oh, yeah. hearing something you've written transports me back to something that is completely, you know, to do with me or my history. Oh, that's great. That's what I want. That's, yeah, it's totally <laughs> there. I think it's great, great fun. It's awesome. In achieving this kind of cohesiveness between all these genres that are part of the musics that you love and that you celebrate, what do you think makes it successful? Whether it's a technical thing, whether it's choice of people who's playing this music and bringing it to life, are there certain times where it hasn't worked where you thought, okay, well, what was missing was dot, dot, dot? I mean, that's a part of the process with every single song as I'm writing it. It's like, where does it want to go? What is it missing? What is or is not working here? Um, and I, I think every song has its own, you know, relationship with that process. Um, some some songs I, I, I edit a lot as I write them, and some songs just kind of come out as they are. But uh, I think that uh, what makes it all work is just uh, that I mean it, you know, that it's authentic to who I am. I'm not trying to put on a hat of somebody else. I'm not trying to fit somebody else's concept of what jazz should be or what good music is or isn't, or, you know, Ambrose sounds really cool. So I'm going to try to sound like Ambrose and everybody thinks he's cool. So I want to be cool. I'm not trying to be cool. I'm just trying to be myself, which is, means I'm not cool a lot of the time. Um, but I, I think that's what kind of ties it all together. And I think I have a lot of, you know, whether I'm aware of them or not, a lot of things that are unique to who I am. I think it's hard for us to escape who we are, uh, for better or for worse. But I think that kind of ties everything together. And um, yeah, I think it's just it's 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 authentic. You know, at least I feel like it's authentic. <laughs> Maybe somebody will hear it and won't agree. <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, speaking of being who you are. I feel like there are two kinds of jazz musicians or two kinds of artists, really. Some people who emerge as if from the womb, fully formed, and their thing, their shtick, their concept, whatever you want to call it, seems really just kind of solidified in there. And then there are jazz musicians where you hear their evolution mm. throughout their career over many, many albums, and you really hear them growing. And both are equally valid and equally fascinating and equally enjoyable to see and assess. Which kind of musician do you think you are? Oh, I mean, I, I, I know the kind that I want to be. I mean, I'm only 35 now, so like, I don't know what the future holds. You know, we have the, uh, 
the the luxury of looking back on Miles Davis's career and be like, oh, he went through this stage and then this stage and then this stage, you know. But like, I'm I'm a baby, you know. So, uh, or you know, relatively speaking, you know. But uh, I, I'd like to be the kind of musician that changes over time. And, you know, some people might not like Miles's quintet, you know, but then they like Bitches Brew and they like, you know, the sextet stuff or, you know, and maybe somebody won't like all the stuff that I do. And I think that's fine. But I like the idea that I'm always reaching for something and I'm always trying to challenge myself. Um, and, uh, you know, and there are some ways that I'm not challenging myself enough, you know, <laughs> but... But um, at least that's the kind of musician that I want to be. I want to be evolving. I want to be, you know, trying to adjust all the time. you learn discover take to heart from the 2019 album with this large ensemble to this new release ah um well i think going into the studio for the first album was was very scary for me because it was such a large session i was responsible for so much i wanted everybody to be happy i, I wanted to kind of be a people pleaser and that process was great. I had some wonderful people uh, working with me throughout the process. Um, uh, Mike Halber and Migi, uh, uh, Migi Wamiyajima, they were both kind of uh, assisting and, uh, and producing in uh, the session. Um, but on, on this record, I, I felt a lot more confidence in the process. I think my band was more familiar with, with, with uh, my way of operating. It was just a little easier. And I, I got to take some more liberties as a producer. I got to record in such a way that kind of you know, allowed me to, you know, uh, get the sound that I wanted. Um, yeah, I was just kind of operating in, operating in a field where I, I knew what was happening. And, uh, and that, that was great. Was it more enjoyable um, the second time around? 
well, it's it was a it was a unique process the second time around. I'll say actually uh, several of the songs on this record were actually from the same recording session uh-huh. as the first one because we we recorded more than one album's worth of material wow. back in 2019. So um, I was always going to put out two records. I was going to put out this one in 2020, um, but uh, then the pandemic hit, of course, and uh, now it's coming out basically just a, another year later. But I was able to add some more stuff to it that that was really fun, and also kind of uh, make some adjustments in the arrangements and kind of go back and fix some things. Like Nina Nina was originally a, a tenor solo, a tenor feature, and then we went and redid it as an alto feature. I, I think overall I was more comfortable featuring myself, honestly. It's like, hey, this is my album. People want to hear what I have to say. And also, like, I think as a soloist, like, because I compose some of these things, I know exactly where the backgrounds come in. I know exactly how the shape of everything, how I want it to be. And, like, uh, and also just my vocabulary on certain songs, like on, like, Neener Neener, the single that just came out, for example. You can't, like, play bebop over that. It sounds dumb, you know? So, like, I had to kind of use my own language. So, um I, I think this album, I, I was definitely just more more present as a soloist and um, and as a producer. Well, I'm glad to hear both that you featured yourself more because your sax playing on this album is beautiful. It's really gorgeous. And the solos are super lyrical and obviously very fitting because you're basically taking all the stuff that you've constructed and getting to run with it a bit further when you are featured. So I guess it's a bit like an architect also overseeing the interior design for something that they design so that like the outside matches the inside which isn't always the case Mm. anyway use that metaphor don't use that metaphor but (laughs) speaking of your being a sax player that's always how i thought of you and we overlapped at the manhattan school of music people who listen to this podcast are going to be like so are all her guests fellow like classmates from msm because i think you're you're probably i don't know maybe the second or third (laughs) one but i always thought of you as a sax player and so i'd love to know how your foray into composition came to be well i never really stopped being a composer or a saxophone player i just um i think that in the jazz world people start taking you more seriously when you write for jazz orchestra so the projects that I had with my twin brother, um, the project we have, it's called LaBeouf Brothers. We did a number of collaborations for different ensembles. We worked with Jack Quartet, which is a string quartet. We actually did uh, two albums that feature a string quartet. Um, and we've, we've always been interested in composition. Even, even we did a, a remix project that was uh, really exciting from a compositional perspective for me. Um, we're using entirely different tools and really, you know, expanding what we're, what our sound is. But I think the jazz world didn't really register those as compositional feats. You know, uh, I think you get a different kind of respect when you write uh, write for an ensemble of this size. So um, I've always been a composer. Um, I will say that writing for jazz orchestra is a good fit for me because I think even when I was younger, I'd be writing these epic, you know, pieces for a small group and just trying to fit, you know, an orchestra into a quintet. And now I'm like, I'm not, I'm not fighting it. Like I just, I have all the colors at my disposal and I can just be that orchestra. In the press release, you're quoted as saying that you being a saxophonist and you being a jazz orchestra composer, arranger, band leader, the two are sort of intertwined by this point. Was that something that developed over time? Was it something you had to figure out or was it something where the chips just fell naturally into their right places? 
I mean, I think um, as a as a, a composer, I, I've got this band of 18, 19, 20 people, depending on which song it is. And I want to feature all my bandmates because we have so many great soloists in the band. And um, I always kind of felt this dissonance between, oh, do I feature myself or do I feature them? And, you know, everybody, like a ton of awesome people are featured on the album. Like Mike Rodriguez has a feature. Matt Holman has a feature on trumpet. Uh, um, Natalie Cressman is featured. Sam Blakesley is featured on trombone. You know, uh, just a lot of great soloists all around. But like, um, I think, I uh, yeah, I, I just, I think on this particular album, I, I just kind of stopped fighting it. I, I, I don't owe it to people. I don't have to feature everyone. I can't make everybody, I can't feature every single person in the band, you know? And um, it just felt right too, you know, like I was, I gave an example of another song earlier. I think some of the songs just are very geared towards my style of improvising. And, um, you know, not that I'm like so special or anything, but I, I think that, you know, there are certain songs that's like, my voice is the most appropriate voice. If I'm, if I'm, you know, playing Union is one of the songs on the record. It's like, I wrote it for my sister's wedding. It's like, well, like, I'm going to have somebody else like featured on my, you know, um, this, this song about a experience that they weren't a part of. Like, it just seems a little silly. So I, I, I was, I'm basically featured on every other track. I think I'm on one, one, three, five, seven, nine, like a nice, you know, nine chord. <laughs> <laughs> Which is very you, Remy. If I had to pick a chord to sum you up, it would be a nine chord. Oh, major or minor? Definitely major, because oh, you want okay. that that kind of, you know, that add to quality, which you can kind of get from a nine chord. <laughs> Let's unpack this. No, I'm just kidding. So I said it earlier in terms of there being a dearth of large ensemble arrangers and composers now, which is kind of amazing if you consider just the sheer as you alluded to earlier as well, the sheer scale of helming a project, a group of people that size, whether you're taking them all into the studio to record or whether you're trying to go on the road with them. I always think of Maria Schneider and any stories she's told way back in the day, filling her trunk with music and stands and going to one, I don't know which dive bar it was, you know, in the West Village in New York. It's just, it's so much work. But I'm so glad that you and other special people are up for it. How would you describe it in terms of what kind of stamina do you need to lead and and not just lead, but actually make progress with an ensemble? So recording with them, releasing with them, performing with them. What kind of discipline and grit do you need to have? And is it is it any different to the grit and discipline you need just to be a, a jazz musician in general? I think you need to be organized. And I think you need to develop... Uh, relationships with people based on respect and communication. Uh, I think it's it's good to, um, I, I think I'm able to get great players, you know, for, you know, a, a, a $50 gig at Long, Long Island City or something because they respect the music and they respect my musicianship. And I think they, they feel respected as well. And we just have a good, a good relationship in that way, you know, um, so like, uh, not that all my gigs are that, <laughs> um, but like, uh, yeah, I think that's, that's really important. Um, and I think, yeah, being able to step in a leadership role is important. You need to be able to feel comfortable doing that. Um, there's no way around it if you're leading a big band and 
uh, yeah, I think uh, having having the ability uh, to to absorb a certain amount of anxiety as a, as a leader of a group this size. Yeah, because every time you have a gig, somebody texts you the morning of like with a, a question about, oh, you know, oh, I need to sub, I can't make it. Oh, you know, I, I, uh, can you, I, I forgot my X, Y, I don't know. Like th- th- there's always something. And so I think after a while, I'm just kind of like ready for that. Is there something about being in this position and exploring it now over many years um, and having these projects come to fruition and go out into the world. Is there something about this context that has surprised you or a lesson, something that you've learned that you think, gosh, okay, that's valuable? Or are you just exhausted? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, with Big Band in particular, you mean? Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that there's a certain uh, amount of of like, you know, exploration that, that can happen. I think after, after arranging and composing enough pieces, I, I like, I like getting into the, getting to the point in, in my compositional process where I don't really know what's going to happen or like, I don't know how, I, I know I want to do something, but I don't know how I'm going to do it. Like uh, when I'm kind of not on autopilot, but like in a, in a, in a new environment, you know, like I, I, I had to do a, a fugue, sort of thing on I wanted to write a fugue on, on this arrangement of Honeymooners by Ornette Coleman on my last album and it's this squirrely line that's like goes through a bunch of different keys and I was like I know I, I need to do this I don't know how I'm gonna do it but I'm gonna mess with it and I ended up kind of piecing something together after a lot of trial and error and I'll just like a lot of a lot of failure but it's so funny like that's a kind of you know failure that I enjoyed <laughs> um I think that, uh, but I, I think there's also a certain amount of like disillusionment that a lot of composers and just jazz musicians in general have, you know, like they're, it's really easy to, you know, there's a lot of, you know, speaking of failure, there's a lot of rejection you deal with, you know, you apply for things, you get rejected, you can't get gigs, you can't get, you know, so like, you know, I've, I've achieved my little wins, but with all of those little wins, there's a ton of failure and rejection. You just need to get used to it. Well, speaking of little wins or not so little wins, that's sage wisdom. It's I think it's I, I love it when people offer up that sort of honesty because it's I find it valuable to hear because it's also I, I'm always fascinated by internal versus external perception and what we see of people's lives and mm. careers and trajectories versus what is actually going on, the kind of nitty gritty of it. So it's very valuable to know that most of one's experience is a human experience. It's very shared. It's just that we all have waves and flows that ebb in different, you know, different ways, different heights, different depths. But speaking of little wins or not so little wins, uh, you received two Grammy nominations for your 2019 album. What did that mean to you? That was great. I mean, that that was... It was very, you know, um, affirming. It, it was great to get that that um, acknowledgement from the music community and just from the community at large. I can impress my partner's parents now. <laughs> it's like, oh, he's a musician. Oh, wait. Oh, he's oh, two Grammy. Not oh, okay. You know, so um, I think uh, hopefully it'll help me a little bit moving forward. Um, but uh, yeah, that it just it felt really good. I was I was delighted. What do you do with that kind of acknowledgement to try and, I guess, spin it into something that 
could potentially you know help you does it is it just that it gets included in your bio now or do you have any sort of strategic approach to taking that win and trying to have it give you more i guess rope uh well i'll i'll be in a better position to let you know how that goes in the coming years because i don't know how much it's really helped me moving forward maybe it's helped me get some gigs but it's it's hard to say because no one's like well because you said you were grammy nominated i'm gonna give you this gig but because of the pandemic i haven't really been able to book much unfortunately so i don't know that it's going to change too much um one thing though on a personal level so i've got my twin brother pascal who you also know it's like he got a grammy nomination a couple years ago and we got to go together and that was fun but now now that i've got two you know i can like kind of lord it over him a little bit there we go <laughs> success has followed there Sorry, we go pascal. that's yeah. true success yeah like exactly sibling rivalry no no we're 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 much less competitive uh i think uh you know but uh but that, that's just kind of like a little funny side note. I get to kind of, hey, Pascal, come on. you exactly. got to catch up with me. <laughs> well, it's good. You spur each other on. I was going to actually ask you oh, following yeah, totally. that. Having a, not, not just a brother, but a twin brother uh, who is also an incredibly accomplished musician, is that something you love? I mean, obviously you don't know any different, but are there aspects of that where often you're like, oh, this is so cool? Oh, I, I, it's it's great. I mean, I think especially so at the beginning of my of both of our interest in, in music, because we could play music together. And I think that most people grow up, you know, either maybe they get to play with people in ensembles once they're like in a part of part of some ensemble, they audition for it or they've got a, they're in a city that has an arts magnet school or something. You know, we didn't have that. You know, um, we ended up, you know, being a part of some education programs later on, but we got our start playing for tips, you know, at a farmer's market for free oysters and tips, you know, like just, just the two of us, like playing some, you know, stuff we learned at a music camp. And, and that was awesome. And then everything kind of came from there, but just having that person to, to play music with, because for me, music is a lot about interaction and communication, jazz in particular. You know, I think the, the reason jazz is so much fun to play and why, I would have a great I'll have a great time every night for a month on the road. It's because it's always different. It's a different conversation and it the music is just this living, breathing thing versus like if I'm playing like on uh, you know, most pop gigs, you know, where you know you're playing like somebody else's solo that's on the record and you have to like transcribe it and that's the exact thing. <laughs> you know, not every gig is like that, but like it's yeah, it's a great thing.
Hi, jumping on here quickly to tell you how you can support the jazz session if you want to. This podcast is kept afloat thanks to the generosity and enthusiasm of listeners who enjoy these conversations so much that they decide to become members over at the Jazz Sessions Patreon page. There are two tiers of membership, $5 or $10 a month. For $5 a month, you'll receive these interviews a day early, and you'll also get a weekly mini bonus episode called Track of the Week, where a jazz artist talks about a track of their new album, and you then hear the song in its entirety. For $10 a month, you'll receive these episodes a day early, a weekly Track of the Week episode, and a monthly bonus episode called The Insider. The Insider is a spin-off series where I chat to jazz industry professionals about the work that they do, the musicians that they work with, and the music that inspires them. You can head to thejazzsession.com join for more information, and please do become a member today. We'd love to see you over there. Now, back to the show. Well, speaking of people in collaborations, one of, I mentioned her earlier, but one of my favorite tracks on this album features the vocalist Julia Easterlin, and you also have Dana Stevens, the fabulous tenor saxophonist featuring. Uh, can you tell me about the inclusion of those two guests? Why? How? Happily. So I'll start with Dana. Uh, I've known Dana for years uh, because uh, I grew up in the Bay Area, in California, or Santa Cruz just below the Bay Area. Bay Area, people thought, you're not from the Bay Area. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, Dana was out there. And uh, I, I remember we played some gigs together probably like 15 years ago, you know. And uh, then, uh, you know, over the years, we've, we've played with Dana on a number of occasions, me and my twin brother. And we had done a, uh, a festival gig um, uh, in the month before the recording session or so, or maybe two months before where we played this song Face Value of mine that uh, uh, Jennifer Wharton commissioned. She's the bass trombonist in the band. But um, yeah, we played this song and Dana sounded so great on it. Um, and we, we recorded it because it was like one of these like uh, um, um, remote jazz festivals, you know. So Dana knew the music and um, we recorded a couple extra tunes on this, this uh, album, Architecture of Storms. Um, during the pandemic, and uh, we did uh, we did a, a couple of the tracks in sections where we did the soloist and the rhythm section first, and then we layered on the the brass and winds, and it was stuff that we'd all played live, you know, so everybody knew the music already. Um, but uh, Dana knew the music, and we we he, he could just come right in and kill it. And so I was like, Dana, you got to come in here, and he was down. So he's he's featured as a guest on uh, Face Value, and. Uh, the other, uh, the other track, oh yeah, Julia Easterlin is incredible. I've wanted to work with her for years. I think she's just an incredible musician, so much fun. She's in my neighborhood too. Um, and uh, I, I wrote this uh, song with a poet at a residency back in 2016 called The Melancholy Architecture of Storms. And uh, it was a really fun collaboration and uh, I wanted to hear Julia sing it. And uh, she came and sang it on a gig uh, right before the pandemic hit. And it was just magic. So I, it, it, it was, it's maybe the song I'm most excited about on the whole record. And, uh, and she, she sounds great. And we had fun like, improvising together on it too. So I, I was happy to make that a part of the album because a lot of, I write a lot of songs. And even though, you know, you don't hear me singing them, 
um, I enjoy writing songs. I love Julia singing on that track. I think it's really, really special. So I'm so glad that you finally got to bring her into the fold and, and collaborate with her. And I suppose the next album will have to hear you singing. That's what I'm getting. <laughs> The, I would never do that to you. Oh my gosh, come on. I, I think it would be amazing. I have no doubt. I wanted to just chat to you briefly about teaching because I think it's so interesting to hear musicians who are both prolific composers and performers and recording artists who also teach. I love to hear their thoughts on that facet of what they do. So Remy, I know that you teach. Where do you teach at the moment? I'm at Manhattan School of Music. I teach at the pre-college program and for their summer program. What do you think is most important to impart to students of any age, certainly pre-college level, which is a bit different to college level? What do you want them to know when they walk away from a lesson or a class with you? Uh, I think uh, I think valuing the process of learning as opposed to the outcome. I think that's one thing that that's really important. I think a lot of a lot of my students, they just want to like do the assignment and get a check and then be done with it. Like, oh, I can play this scale. Cool. I'm done forever. No, no, no. You know, I think I think for students to understand the process of learning and the value of, you know, focusing on different aspects of something while you're doing it or, you know, um, also in terms of self-worth and self-value, you know, for students to understand that it is a process, you know, it's really easy to get discouraged when something doesn't sound amazing immediately, um, whether it's an instrument or whether it's a composition. And so to just, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of students too, they, they want to, uh, they want to know the, the secret to awesome composing or how do I become a great saxophone player? And they want that, you know, PDF of two five licks that's going to change their lives. It's like, no, that's not how it works. <laughs> you need to show up every day and take part in the process. You need to, uh, you know, be engaged. You need to not be looking for shortcuts, but looking for, you know, it's kind of, I, I, I'll, I'll compare the, the process to like weightlifting or something like that. It's like, you're not going to show up the day before, you know, something and lift like a ton of like a 300 pound weight or what it's like, no, you're going to have to start small with like 10 pound weights and really good technique. And then you do it 15 pounds, maybe like a month later or two months later. And it's just like an overtime building upon, you know, your gains. Um, so yeah, I think that's, that's how I kind of see education. I'm so glad you said that because in fact, I got the exact same answer from Dominique Ede at New England Conservatory when I said oh, really? what, what okay. is most important, and she said, I want people to know that it's a process, that it is. So cool. so just in case Smart. anybody, <laughs> yeah, Remy, I wanted to let you know it's corroborated by somebody in a different state and a different city um, and at a different university. But what is the most valuable thing that you've learned? So you mentioned Mike Holliber earlier, and I assume that you learned, uh, he was actually teaching when I was there. I had him and Jim. I assume, I don't know if you had both of them when you were, Jim McNeely, when you were at Manhattan School of Music? I did not study composition at Manhattan School of Music in the jazz pro program. I was a saxophone performance major and I studied, I split lessons uh, between, you know, various saxophone teachers and uh, uh, Mark, uh, J. Mark Stambaugh in the classical composition department. Mm. Okay, I'm glad I asked. Well, whether it was him or whether it was somebody else at any point in your journey, what's the most valuable thing that you've been taught when it comes to large ensemble 
composition or arranging or band leading? I think that uh, for large ensemble in particular, um, I'm going to just focus on, you know, composing large ensemble music. I think there's a lot of focus on like, you know, um, just like vertical, like voicing, you know, here's the voicing and stuff like that. And like, I think that that stuff is good, but uh, there's so much more to it than that. And uh, I think that uh, it's important to be able to come up with an idea and develop that idea, regardless of whether it's a lead sheet or whether it's like orchestrated for a full big band, you know, you're not going to make an idea better because you've got 18 instruments playing it. You need to start with the right idea. And I think, um, yeah, I, I, I think there's a lot you can learn from just, you know, comparing music to language. What makes something interesting? What makes something, inter- what makes something you know, stick? So like we have a certain amount of repetition. You could look at like famous speeches, and like, uh, you know, repetition, you know, in those speeches and it kind of establishes an expectation and then you break that expectation or like a good joke or even a conversation. Um, I think there needs to be a certain amount of consistency and cohesion that makes a conversation, you know, uh, about something, but then to, to take it somewhere interesting, you know, there needs to be a certain amount of variety and, uh, things that are unexpected. And I think that all of those principles apply in composition as well. And soloing. Mm, I love that analogy and soloing. Yeah. I love that analogy. That's great. And Remy, when you hear large ensemble music that kind of speaks to you, makes you stop what you're doing, sit up and listen, what is it that you're responding to, if you can put your finger on it? Um, I just, I, yeah, I, I, I can't. I mean, it, it, it depends on the music, you know, and who the composer is. You know, if I were to think of like large ensemble music in particular, like Maria Schneider, of course, is one of my my favorite uh, large ensemble composers. And uh, I mean, she's not trying to sound like anyone else. You know, she's she's just being true to herself. And she has all these these beautiful textures and melodies. And I just really believe it, you know? I, I really feel it. I mean, and maybe that's a subjective thing. Um, but uh, yeah, just like, it, yeah, I don't know. Tough, tough, tough question to answer. But I, I think that, you know, I can be kind of, taken away by like the themes of a piece like maybe it's bar talk or something too like that's a large ensemble an orchestra is a large ensemble as well um the way that uh, themes are introduced and developed and like what the theme is and the character it has and just the world it creates i like i like worlds you know i like entering into a world and getting lost in it and kind of forgetting that i exist You answered that beautifully. And in fact, it does link back into what you were saying about your own music earlier, which it sounds like from Maria's music, what you get from it is a sense of musical integrity and honesty. You can tell it works because it's her and that's what you are achieving and setting out to achieve with your music as well. So you did answer it. Well, not trying to be her, but yeah, trying to be me. Yeah, exactly. Sorry. (laughs) No, no, no. I'm just clarifying. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, the description for this interview. Remy LaBeouf, a.k.a. Maria Schneider version 2.0. We've got plenty of those already. <laughs> Remy LaBeouf.
everybody who supports the Jazz Session, starting with the members over at Patreon. Head to thejazzsession.com slash join to find out more about membership and to the Respect Sextet at respectsextet.com for the theme music for the show. If you want to follow the Jazz Session online, there's a Twitter page, at Jazz Sesh, and Instagram and Facebook pages are at The Jazz Session. There's also a YouTube channel to which you can subscribe if you want to hear excerpts of my conversations with the season's guests in video format. That's right, you can head there to see our faces. Please do rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on any and all podcast platforms, and feel free to tell folks about the show if you enjoy these interviews. I would really appreciate the word of mouth. Now, back to my conversation with Remy. able to hear you and your large ensemble live anywhere soon uh, also a tricky question everywhere we've got every major city no um we're gonna be playing at the jazz gallery in new york on november 5th the day of the release um i'll also be playing um in in november um in los angeles uh, vibrato on the 23rd and in oakland on the 20th of november um this is all november so yeah so far. That's what I got so far. But, uh, that's perfect, though. If you're in New York, then you can go and hear Remy LaBeouf's Assembly of Shadows live at the Jazz Gallery. And also, what a great venue. Oh, love it. They're great. Long live the Jazz Gallery. And yeah, Californians, there you go. Head to LA. And I'll put all the stuff in the show notes in case people didn't write down as we went along. Remy, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been delightful to talk to you. Thank you. Lovely talking to you as well. <laughs> Thank you so much to this week's guest, Remy LeBeouf. 
His new album, Architecture of Storms, comes out on the 5th of November 2021. Find it, buy it, wherever you get your music these days, and hopefully you'll get to see him live if you are in New York. Go and check out his website and tour dates for more information. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I will see you next week for a new episode of The Jazz Session. Bye.